0: Welcome to the New Models podcast. New Models is a pro-complexity media outlet for the critical analysis of tech, art, politics, and pop culture. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models founder Carly Busta and artist Daniel Keller. On this episode, we speak with Lucy Chinon and Sean Raspit of Non Food, the producers of the algae-based non Bar, among other radically sustainable food products currently in development. The following conversation is as much about food futures, what actual practical issues factor into engendering a sustainable food supply chain, but also about the marketing myths and magical thinking that underpin our current ways of eating, particularly in America. It also has everything you ever wanted to know about flavor. Let's get into it.
1: began in 2016 is that correct or
2: yeah that's right
1: And can you tell me and Lucy also like what what led you to first begin it how did you go from hey this is an interesting idea on paper to we will make this into a company the interest was in how food is understood culturally and historically
2: I guess I had known about algae for a fair amount of time as a potential food source it's like a known but also kind of kind of like a moonshot idea. Like a lot of scientists that study the ecological footprints of the food system say, okay, algae would be the best possible food source. But at the same time, it's acknowledged that there's a kind of high barrier for it to becoming practical in the everyday sense What is that barrier? Um, uh, So I think it's a few things. Uh, One is the consumer's unfamiliarity with it. Another is its uh, inherent flavor, which is, you know, not something that most people in the, you know, at least in the U.S. are familiar with.
3: Well, I was going to say the infrastructure for growing it Mm. um, already existed for people who are thinking about it as biofuel. Mm -hmm. Um, But then... Right. Fracking.
2: Yeah, I think <laughs> that that was another thing that that made it a little bit closer to a possibility was during the time of kind of development of biofuels. There was you know certainly a lot of corn uh, based ethanol fuel, but a lot of companies were looking at algae as a way to produce it because it has that same kind of efficiency whether you're producing food or fuel. But then fracking and and other factors made the price of oil uh, much cheaper, and then those companies weren't able to compete with that very cheap price of oil some of them pivoted towards producing food mainly in in terms of supplements but others started to produce food ingredients at least on a relatively small scale Uh, others went out of business Um, but you know there basically was this kind of supply of kind of algae food ingredients that i was aware of that with some of my background working in the food industry i thought that it would be possible to put those together into a product and also having some background in flavor chemistry you know i thought that i could improve the flavor
1: There's a lot in there that I'm excited for us to unpack in this cast regarding the efficiency of algae, the cultural context of algae being accepted or not in certain in in America versus other parts of the world. But so we have a context for non-food and your particular perspective. Sean, could you say a word more about your artistic practice and some of the other projects that may be related to non-food or that led up to non-food with Soylent and your other works?
2: Probably one of the main themes of my work over the last five to 10 years is this kind of question of the art economy versus the mass economy or looking at the kind of material infrastructure of the kind of economy at large and and trying to work with that. So, for example, yeah, I worked at uh, Soylent as a flavor designer and food product designer and I saw that as part of my art practice. I can't really talk about the products that, you know, I worked on because it's, you know, under confidentiality, but at least one of them is known, I think. But I see that as very much a part of my practice. And for me, it was a realization of a goal of scaling some of what I was doing into a larger arena.
4: Actually. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about your work at Soylent? So you developed one of the first flavors that was developed outside of in-house lab, correct?
2: So yes and no. So like when I started working there, there was already the basic Soylent flavor that had already been developed. I did a lot of prototyping behind the scenes, I would say. And the one flavor that that I can kind of talk about because it's public knowledge is uh, Soylent Nectar. And that was, yeah, something that they produced for I think about a year and a half, but ultimately discontinued. It it was a kind of a bifurcating flavor. You know, it was a little bit. I didn't think it was that unusual, but for people, it was a little bit unusual. And and certainly, like, the way that the internet is, if they even slightly dislike something, then they call it, you know, like, putrid garbage or something. So, like, I just remember threads on Reddit that were just like, oh, this tastes like my grandfather's ashes or whatever. Yeah, versus, like, people, like, I love this. You know, it tastes like fruit loops or so it's really either one or the other. And. Yeah, recently I kind of happened upon a Reddit thread or a few Reddit threads where uh, people have been saving them, you know, like since they went out of production because like at least some group of people is very very into the flavor and it's become this kind of phenomenon where whenever something is discontinued then people instantly go nostalgic for it, but regardless of whatever reasons, like there are some like hardcore uh, supporters of it which I thought was pretty interesting. And then there was also a change.org petition to like bring it back as well.
1: <laughs>
4: but yeah, so it was based off of a bee pheromone, right?
2: That's right, yeah. Can you
1: describe- Private? A lot of people
2: say it's like lemongrass or it, or it is like that kind of note of uh, if you've had like Fruit Loops <laughs> as a kid, then the milk <laughs> left over in the cereal bowl. It is also kind of lemony and then that was what some of the detractors said is that it was too lemony or it tasted even like lemon pledge or, or some cleaning product that would use lemon. <laughs> uh, so I think Dan kind of thought that too, if I remember <laughs> I correctly. Liked <laughs> I liked it. I liked it, but it had,
4: it had a note a note of pledge, yeah. for sure. It was but it was like a flower a flower, a flower uh, yeah. It's a floral. Yeah, floral. yeah it's also floral, you know, which no, makes but that's sense. that's because uh,
3: people use lemongrass and like citrus and flor- lavender and stuff in cleaning products.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's like it's the problem natural. is not, it's not inherent uh, to the yeah, flavor, exactly. but it's the way that it's used in our particular culture and way of manufacturing products. It can signify these cleaning products because of how often it's used in them. Uh, but yeah. that's not
0: fair
4: oh yeah what I think is funny is like they they market it though like once it was kind of divisive let's say they started marketing it as strawberries so they just had like a red bottle and they even started putting I think strawberries in some of the advertising <laughs> guys. I saw it just to try oh, to like, trick people and I guess like people I would imagine be more disappointed once it's really not like strawberry but it was an interesting uh, half measure or something. Yeah, I,
2: mean, I, can't, I can't comment on that. But,
1: um, <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, what's amazing, of course, is is the idea that taste, and in this case, literal taste, is actually contingent on one's own subjective experience of the world. So what I think tastes good is going to be totally conditioned by not just my palate or DNA or something, but of course, like whether I grew up with a mom who washed my socks with like lemon citrus flavored washing detergent.
3: Or like uh, the whole voc- vocabulary of that American sense is like made by like what
2: Yankee Candle I don't no, know the no. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah.
3: so one fragrance company
2: well yeah the there's About pretty much ones. three or three of the big companies make a vast majority of the scented products so like Giboudon International Flavors and Fragrances and Firminish are probably the top three and they make everything from like Tide Pods to Lemon Pledge to Fruit Loops to any sort of flavor and fragrance uh, that's used by let's say Procter and Gamble or or other other large manufacturers. That's, that's
4: um, wow. spooky.
1: That is crazy. <laughs> do you know? Do yeah.
4: you know like, has the industry consoli- Has it always been that consolidated, or do they like go on a mergers and acquisitions kind of spree like other industries?
2: I mean, those three were founded, I think, in the probably late 1800s or early 1900s, just as flavor chemistry was starting to be. Discovered or starting to be a thing. Furmanish might be a little bit later, but yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think that they've probably consolidated over the years, but they've probably they definitely acquire other smaller companies. Um, I've heard of. I've heard of that happening quite a lot as well.
1: Can you explain to us just how it works? So, like let's say you have Fruit Loops. Basically they're sourcing the grains from one place and they're they're sourcing the stabilizers from another place. And then when they source the flavor, it's just this package that arrives from Fermanish or whatever the flavor people are. And then they just add that to the production line. What does that flavor package look like? I mean, is it literally just like a vat of liquid or powder that's already pre-mixed, or is it like they've they've consolidated a complex complex like here's some cilantro and here's some lemons or like w- what is the actual material deliverable that they are giving mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, usually it is a liquid. Sometimes it's a powder. Sometimes it's spray dried into a powder. It depends on the application, but I I would say most of the time it's a liquid. It is just like a it's like a chemical vat that just has this stuff inside of it. It's usually a clear or slightly yellowish liquid. Sometimes it might have extracts in it. It depends on the product, but usually it it wouldn't necessarily have extracts in it.
3: It's definitely not having like whole herbs or something.
2: Oh yeah,
4: Unless it wouldn't. It wouldn't.
3: Something at home. Yeah, so it would, on an industrial, I mean, like on a factory scale, it's not um, whole fruit or herbs or anything.
2: Yeah, it wouldn't industrial have any like organic matter. I mean, by that I mean like actual plant parts. You know, it would have the oils filtered out if it has anything from coming from a plant, but otherwise it would just mainly be the the kind of liquid. And yeah, it is kind of like they always keep it as a trade secret almost across the boards. I've heard of some of the larger companies like Colgate negotiating that they they have to reveal their flavor ingredients to them after a period of like maybe a few years, but most of them, most of the time they keep it a a secret. It's kind of a black box. And the flavor
1: um, company keeps it a secret to even Colgate. So even Colgate. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow! Yeah, that's yeah, so, right. yeah. Because then, then Colgate the can't
2: go and, and take it and say, "Hey, we we know all the ingredients. Can you just manufacture this for, for a you know cheaper price to some other company to some like sort of like secondhand secondary manufacturer or something?" So,
4: but then there's of course like reverse engineering flavors, which you did mm-hmm. within your work. So, like, how does that work mm-hmm. exactly?
2: Yeah. So it is possible, but there's kind of like diminishing returns as you get further along. But basically, there's a thing called a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, and it, you basically take a a purified sample of the flavor. And sometimes you can extract that from a, an actual product, although that that's a little bit hard to do, but you can do it and you run it through this machine and it, you'll see a graph with like peaks and each peak represents a different molecule that is essentially vaporizing at a different temperature. What it does is it tells you what molecules are in it and what percentage they are. The only problem is that the human nose can be much more sensitive to certain molecules than the machine. I think it's pretty co- common that you run it through the machine and that it's missing kind of 20 percent of the information and then you kind of have to do the rest by nose. You have to kind of make that formulation and then add to it what you think it needs and keep testing it. So it's it's not like an exact exact thing but it gets you pretty close. One thing that's kind of interesting that I've heard about is that some of the fragrance and flavor formulators at these companies will kind of like add white noise to the product. So they'll have a kind of clean mixture that is just the things that you smell, but then they'll add like other things to essentially trick other chemists at other companies that are going to try to reverse engineer it. Wow! Uh, So I've I've heard about that as well.
4: Uh, Flavor wars. But I mean like the challenge with your flavor for Soylent was really that it was like square morphic and there wasn't any like really clear identifying note for anybody to latch onto. And so I think that's kind of an interesting like problem in general with food design that I know you're interested in. So maybe we could talk about that.
0: Uh, yeah, sorry, there's just one thing I wanted to add. So you're actually saying we're like ingesting chemicals that were put there simply to protect like a patented
2: flavor uh so when you put it that way it sounds really really bad right well, i guess but, what you're
3: saying is more of the that white noise one is yeah. more related yeah. the fragrance
2: well it could no it they, so? they do it in flavor okay. i think too but to your question it's basically the well it's not patentable the flavor generally is not patentable well, I mean, but mean, keep, keep it as a secret it, right? Yeah, it's IP. Yeah, it's IP protected in the sense that they keep it a secret. And so theoretically, I think you're not even supposed to reverse engineer it. Uh, I'm not really sure. But but, yeah, or you're at, but your question we're eating is we're we eating, eating, eating
0: chemicals to protect intellectual yeah, property. but, but,
2: but, but chemicals but in quotes. Chemicals, I mean,
4: like, I mean, like, this is of course where we're gonna
0: have right. to get we
2: into. We, is, we will
4: Yeah,
0: get exactly. of, yeah exactly. but still, it's a totally arbitrary, like, like unnecessary ingredient. There's a
1: lines of code in that in that yes. formula that are not necessary for I'm eating molecules
0: dormant. to protect into, intellectual property. <laughs> correct. But okay, I was so
3: thinking it'd be it funny if it like broke the machine if you tried to analyze.
4: Well, isn't that is it thats with like scanners that you if you try to scan dollar bills it like freaks out and knows about it. Anyways, oh, whatever. Really? Yeah. Oh. Awesome. oh
2: right, right. Well huh. oh, like what if there was a watermark? That would be pretty interesting. Well this is they what it is basically.
4: It's like a watermark yeah. made out of whatever. Although but I guess like so yeah. but they're not they're like odorless but they would still show up on the gas spectrometer. I, that's what I don't
2: I, like. I'm a little bit unclear because I've just heard of this like secondhand. But my understanding is that they could be odorless, or they could be something that has like a low odor. Also, yeah. alternatively, the other the flip side of that is that they might add something that has a really high odor per molecule. So like the nose the nose can be like really uh-huh. have a really different sensitivity to different molecules. So like if you've smelled anything sulfurous, you can smell that in like parts per trillion in the air. Wow. Versus Jeez. versus like other molecules, you would smell in parts per million. So it's it's like kind of a million times stronger than other molecules, just on a per molecule basis. So anyway, so they might add in things that they know will actually really affect the flavor, but it would be usually below the threshold of the machine to detect. So that's kind of like the alternative. But the, yeah, I think in terms of adding white noise, it's more like things that aren't particularly necessary for the for the flavor formulation. That they would add in just to kind of confuse people, I guess. But to to your question, Julian, about the the chemicals, you know, okay. so I think we'll we'll probably talk about this a lot in this podcast, but chemicals are like everything is chemical. I know. know, know, know important to oh well, what's that? I know. I mean yeah, we all know this intellectually, but you know, it bears repeating and I think maybe the issue is is not so much chemicals per se, but the kind of unknowns about it. I mean the fact that in this case it's a kind of secretly held chemical composition, maybe that's part of the issue. But yeah, everything's a chemical and these are safe chemicals. They they actually are, you know, like I'm not an industry shill or something. Like they're they're tested for being safe to consume. They're pretty thoroughly tested. And then there's specific regulations as to how much you can use per product. So so that, you know, one molecule, you might be able to use one part per million. Another molecule, you can y- maybe use like 500. And, you know, people have to follow those guidelines. Flavors have to follow those guidelines. So uh, it's not like they're just exposing people to random chemicals. They are chemicals, but so is the rest of the food. Technically.
3: Do you think that's the case with the coca-cola pepsi thing because that's like the most secret proprietary flavor that's the that's most known, like myth-
2: mythologized yeah. yeah flavor i think it's not even a hard flavor to crack necessarily like you not, did analyze
3: that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I yeah, think you, um,
4: she, he reverse he reverse analyzed Coke, but then he you made it the reverse molecules basically. Yeah,
2: yeah. that was a piece that I did a, a little while back, and yeah, I basically analyzed Coca Cola, and then in chemistry, there's a thing called an, an enantiomer. So basically, most molecules, unless it's really simple like water, most molecules will have a left-handed version and a right-handed version and that comes into play with pharmaceuticals a lot because sometimes you know one of the two versions is active and the other one isn't or one of them is harmful the other one isn't
0: like That's they well, they just patented right. ket ketamine is ketamine. 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 ketamine it's just one ketamine, isomer or, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. So ketamine is, is better racemic right and also with a, adderall, yeah, adderall adderall too yeah. Yeah. it's it's a particular salt of amphetamine like a particular Left
1: or isomer yeah and
4: mm-hmm. how you can do it for copyright troll you can also just like if your patent expires you just Changes it slightly it, right. or flip
2: part of it or whatever.
1: But Coke. So you were talking about reverse engineering Coke, and like oh, yeah. I, we derailed you halfway through. So
2: yeah. So basically, I just analyzed Coca Cola, figured out what are the you know if you add up every single molecule, like what are the different proportions. You know, there's probably like some subthreshold molecules, like I was talking about, you know, that don't show up on the GCMS. But anyway, within what shows up on the GCMS, you know, and then I basically just took all of those and found some supplier of the enantiomer of that molecule. And then added those up. And then so it's essentially, it's a mirror image of Coca-Cola. Like on a molecular level, it's the opposite. It's it's a mirror image, but otherwise it's identical. But it's toxic, right? You can't drink it? (laughs) No, it's not toxic, but you can't digest it. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so like you would drink it and it would pass through you would, it's actually no calorie you know so it's like coke, coke zero basically There you uh, go.
4: because
2: <laughs> the, the sugars you can't digest them because a sugar is a good example of something that your body can only digest Usually it's the the right-handed sugar. It can't digest any left-handed sugars. And so the, this Coca-Cola used all left-handed sugars. Wow.
1: There you go. So is this what, like, you're, you know, when you were a kid and you were, like, kind of okay with your mom buying generic stuff, but it was really important that she get real Coke and not, like the generic <laughs> cola. But like the cola, is that what they were basically doing? They were just trying to reverse engineer what Coke was by doing like the left-handed uh molecules of the is that how they would do no, it? No, because
4: you couldn't digest not it. the left-handed well, Those are really expensive the, actually too, right? The left-handed left-handed sugars. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. Most of those chemicals were pretty fine, like rare chemicals. So uh they're pretty expensive per gram. The left-handed sugar is I don't know. It's like probably a dollar per gram. So, or no, maybe it was even $10. I can't remember. Damn. So if I used like, you know, 20 grams, it was already like $200. Wow. So
0: yeah. There's uh. like 20 grams of sugar and what, like a uh, hundred milliliters
2: of <laughs> something, or something. Yeah, exactly. I think that I don't remember exactly, but I think that's around what I used and that's about, and that was the display size of the, of the work too. It was a hundred milliliters. So yeah.
3: <laughs> Wow. <laughs> like
1: a really rich
3: person that wants... Uh, Shadow uh, Coke?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lucy, do you want to say a word about what your background
3: is? I've been doing legal research or paralegal work for a nonprofit. We pursue retailers of products that in some way violate consumer protection or FDA requirements.
1: Can you give an example of what that would be? Left-handed or Coke. Like, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, in the beginning, a lot of it was supplements, I guess. And so, like, if someone says that they're a certain amount of, colonies in probiotic in their probiotic supplement, but like it's only possible to have a a certain amount, then that's false marketing. Or if you can't say that a supplement will help with the disease, You can say that it helps with similar symptoms, but it can't be so direct to where it would lead you to believe that you're talking about a particular disease because supplements are not drugs and drugs are very expensive to trial and things like that. So it's false marketing to say anything close to the fact that they will cure like a disease.
1: So you're like goop police.
3: I think that's interesting now because like I'll look at some of these newer companies that I feel like are being misleading, but they aren't necessarily being misleading in the way that Consumer Protection or the FDA specifies.
4: I mean, I think there's like a general crisis of like trust with yeah. our food and our the ingredients that we have. And again, like, yeah, a misunderstanding of what chemicals are. Well,
1: uh, and maybe you can actually pose it as a question. What do you think it is that has caused this loss of trust, especially in America and the food system? If the FDA is doing its job, if it, you know, and if chemicals are just molecules by other names, what do you think the shift has been that's made Americans really freak out about the food system and what truths might there be that actually back that up, or what are some of the the drivers of that hysteria? And is it, yeah, is it, any of it well founded?
2: Well, the FDA is maybe not entirely doing its job. I mean, it's the, it has its theoretical. There's just so much re- out there. I don't yeah, think. it has its theoretical things that it's supposed to regulate. There's regulations out there, but it's not like they're 100 percent enforced. Hence Lucy's work, you know, in regards to kind of enforcing it via lawsuits to uh, supplement manufacturers that are where the plaintiff is a consumer or in this case, a a nonprofit. But uh, I think I really think the biggest reason is probably the corporate consolidation of the entire food industry. So, you know, in a similar way that, you know, maybe three companies make pretty much all the flavors and fragrances and by the way, I like some of these companies. I know I know the, some of the people there and they do amazing stuff. With flavors it's not as much of a problem because it's like as Julian said it's that's a kind of arbitrary extra thing added to the food. But for the actual food itself, you also have a similar situation where it's Maybe three companies that are doing most of the business in the the U.S. that own most of the food supply chain. And a lot of things are not very transparent to people. And so I think this kind of removal from the food system leads to mistrust, probably.
3: I actually think most of it is like the way things are marketed. Yeah. And then... Well, recently I noticed that there's been kind of like a shift in a lot of companies really emphasizing the fact that they're science based. And like maybe that's kind of a response to Goop, like where people were calling her out. And then she just like hired a Mr. Oz type person to like speak on behalf of her claims of the products that she was selling. But it's weird because, okay, so like the first example I noticed that happening was that company, The Ordinary. It's like facial serums and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, I've seen it. They started doing this kind of like hyper scientific language, but to the point where it was almost freshman theory or something (laughs) like it was like equally opaque. There's so much conflicting information in terms of articles and how studies are interpreted. I mean, Dan shared this thing about the Impossible Burger having GMO soy, but then it was like from one of these groups called like Moms for America. Didn't it have the word
2: freedom in it or something? I don't like, know. It was like yeah. something Moms about for uh, free <laughs> Moms for
0: America. Moms against Soy Boys. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but there's just like a, a lot of stuff, or people hear like a really small piece of information and they think. Well, for example, like that something is like inflammatory.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, right. yeah.
3: Well,
0: but one. I mean, the big picture, though, is that there's a huge market for paranoia around mm. these things. Oh, yeah. Right. Like there's an incentive yeah, heard- to push back and find some study that suggests something in the mainstream food market is de- bad for you. Well, it's politics because- anyway,
1: too. You need right. me because this crisis is happening. You need this supplement because you might be suffering from X disease. But so we see a couple of things. So one is marketing. The other is the consolidation of different suppliers. And that goes right down to, of course, like the grains and the pesticides, the Monsanto situation and the farmers. And then there's a third vector, though, that I am interested in, which is abstraction. And I wonder, you know, as somebody who's making something that's quite abstract, the name of, of your company is non-food. You're playing with abstraction at the core. What is abstraction to you guys in the current food chain? What's the potential in it? And what maybe are some of the complications of how abstract the food chain has gotten?
2: I guess there's maybe two different kinds of abstraction in this case. One is the abstraction of the flavor, let's say, like, for example, nectar being a somewhat ab- abstract flavor or the flavor of the non-bar is kind of, is abstract. I would say it's not designed to mimic any other flavor. It's not like a representational flavor in that way. But then I think there's another kind of abstraction where it's people's removal from the production process. And I think that kind of abstraction is probably the more important of the two. But at the same time, personally, like, and, and aesthetically, I'm interested in in abstraction of like, yeah, the food product itself, the kind of flavor, what are the kind of possibilities of it? I mean, back to the kind of arbitrariness of the flavor that's added to the food, you know, it's also very arbitrary, usually the kind of fruit moniker that they pick for a flavor, something being strawberry. I mean, in the end of the day, it is this vat of flavor molecules and there's no part of it that comes from a strawberry at any point in time. They're designed in a way that may or may not taste like a strawberry. Maybe it hints at it, maybe it's really a stretch. But nevertheless, a product that you see on the shelf will always say strawberry, banana, chocolate. You know, it'll it'll always uh, reference a kind of previously known and understood flavor. And of course, that's something that we're interested in pushing against and stretching the boundaries of that of that kind of space of possibility.
0: One more thing about flavors, like the molecules that they discover, like artificial strawberry. say, it's all kind of by chance, right? Isn't it kind of like trial and error and someone synthesizes a chemical and they're like, oh, this smells like strawberries. Let's see if it's edible. I mean, how did every all of these artificial flavors actually develop?
2: There's a, a few different ways. Uh, one way is the trying out different molecules and, and they find one that does have this strawberry note that doesn't exist in nature. But probably another very large component is that they'll analyze the strawberry, Mm -hmm. use the GCMS, figure out what's in that strawberry. And then to the extent that the chemicals are available and food grade and and, and food safe, then they'll add those together to use that as a starting point to evoke that strawberry. And then typically they'll make some changes to like it. It's not usually exactly what the GCMS Gives you because you have to make some modifications, but that'll be their starting point, and and that's kind of how the flavor industry started. You know, they kind of made discoveries of vanillin is a is a well known example. It's the main molecule in vanilla, and it gives it its pretty much characteristic note. But there's lots of other molecules in it that add to the complexity. But vanillin, they discovered using another material. It could have been an extract of pine or something like that and they did some things to it and then it smelled like vanilla and then they figured out that this is the flavor note that's in the vanilla plants.
3: If you only use like one molecule and you're trying to mimic something scent-wise or flavor-wise that exists in nature, the flavor is equally one-dimensional.
2: Usually like for a flavor, I would say that there's between 20 and 100 molecules, sometimes more. So it's not just one molecule, it's, it's really the specific proportions of the molecules that give the ultimate effect. So it is a lot like perfume where you're adding different ingredients and and in the case of a lot of perfumes, it's chemicals, synthetic or otherwise that uh, are being added to get a kind of finished product, a kind of uh, multidimensional effect, hopefully.
1: Can you give us a picture of what that lab would look like? I know there's this test, but besides the test, Mm -hmm. there has to be some human there that then is the nose on the plant floor that then goes and smells it. Or what does it look like? I'm just imagining this.
2: Yeah, so there's... That's me. (laughs) That's me for for non-food, yeah, yeah. So I guess there's the flavor lab and then there's the food manufacturing facility on the plant floor. Then you you also have people that are quality control. And there it also depends, but typically you, you do have notes in the production specifications of like it should have this kind of smell or this kind of flavor and but people on the factory floor are are maybe not quite as knowledgeable about your product so usually that's part of the reason that companies usually send someone from their own company to also be there to make sure i love the
4: idea Um, of like a Diva scent designer who does all the quality control work themselves.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, and they like definitely yeah. don't do Coke or anything. No, 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 <laughs> no They keep their, they keep their nose plugged outside. Exactly.
4: But there are like, there's like some rock star flavor designers, right? It's not like just like these labs, which is sort of how I guess you imagine yeah. it. But like
1: are there any but the are there any flavorists flavor?
4: that we should know? I mean, I guess I remember you mentioning oh. whoever designed was it Blue Raspberry or was it uh, cool, yeah, yeah. A right. Cooler Ranch? Some of these Watermelon like
0: really, Jolly Ranch. Yeah,
2: yeah there's some like very, you know.
1: Yeah, what are that? What yeah. are the, the superstars of flavors?
2: I think that there was actually another time in the history of like food technology where, where people were actually a bit more playful and, yeah. and, and consumers were willing to be a little bit more adventurous and think of it as something that was a little bit plastic, a little bit like something that could be played with. Uh, and I think Blue Raspberry is kind of like a hint of that of that time. I think sixties.
4: It was like the yeah. same Jello era. era. Yeah, Jell-O, exactly, yeah. where
2: everything could be Yeah. In Jello. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting time. And, you know, I think at least with with non-food, like we're interested in trying to do do things along those lines. But but one thing that I do know about blue raspberry is that supposedly the story is that there were different red colors that you could use that were approved for use in food by the FDA. And they would use this one red for like cherry flavor, another red for strawberry flavor, and then another red for raspberry. And maybe that one was more pinkish or something. I don't know. The FDA at some point did a study and decided that this is... Is actually not safe for food, and then they had to recall it. That. And so they were at a loss for a flavor to use, and so then they used blue. Uh, that's the story that I've, that I've heard about why it's blue.
0: But there was there was also what was it, yellow five. There was some color that was banned in my lifetime for sure, for like yeah. lowering sperm count yeah. or something.
2: But yeah, I think in terms of chemicals in food, I would be more worried about the color than any sort of flavor or thing or anything like that, because those are quite different like on a molecular level than things that are normally ingested by humans. So hmm. I think that probably they are fairly safe, but it, that's just like a category of chemical that I would be a little bit more concerned about than anything flavor related. You know, the flavors probably make up like it's almost always less than 1%. Usually it's less than 0.1% of the finished product. So it's like a very, very, very small amount that you're adding that then gives it this hint of whatever it is that you're trying to evoke. So it's not it's not the main ingredient by any, by any means.
1: But I think it's in- interesting to point out that you know in general you know most food that you're buying at their grocery store has been broken down and then reconstituted that this may be problematic maybe it's fine what I think is interesting with non-food is that you embrace that you're this company that is using a very very basic and sustainable food stuff and yet you're not keeping this goop myth of like all natural made by like Moms. I don't yeah it's it's like no you're embracing this reality that most of the food stuff that we're ingesting has actually been broken down and then reconstituted in some form. I mean, whether it's Tropicana orange juice or whether it's wheat bread. And I mean, I'm also interested in your thoughts on that process and if it actually is good or bad, but I like that non-food starts with that abstraction and then also says, yes, but what we're doing is also incredibly sustainable. Maybe re-educating us to embrace the abstraction. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that alienates us from our food products. We get away from this idea that the only place you can shop is your CSA. Like, because that's not scalable, right? That's not possible in a larger zone. Yeah.
0: I mean, this, the only way we're going to be able to have sustainable food for the future anyways is like with like bug protein burgers and krill burgers and algae burgers and uh, just all very un- unconventional, abstracted burgers is the yeah. only
4: way we're going to get but, protein but the to the masses, the big difference right? with what they're doing is like, yeah, Impossible Burgers, all the ones they're trying. They're, they have this morphic or an attempt at imitating the flavors that already existed. Yeah, Like non-food is, I think.
1: Blue you know, raspberry of that. Yeah, is the blue yeah. raspberry <laughs> right. of
4: meat. And I mean, it's worth talking about beyond burger, whatever, they, the most successful IPO since 1990.
1: Wait, can I ask uh, one I'm question sure first? Yeah. Can I just go back and ask the one question? Is it true that like, I really have this feeling when I go to the States and I see like every single thing that we're buying in the grocery store is actually made of all this other stuff. Is that a Goop paranoia? Or is that is there actually something true in that that's that like the, what you're eating that's hyper processed you know everything's been dried and recombined and put back together or just that made of
0: entirely soy and or, corn yeah made
1: of entirely soy and corn or these monocultures monocultures is something else I'd also like to address in this class <laughs> but um, but it, in your research I mean is it hysteria to be concerned about that or do you think there is something to the way that 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 process is playing out that is negative does have negative health downstream health effects
2: real quick i would say that it's i would say it's neutral nutritionally and it can be neutral environmentally it's really a matter of like, what's the finished product? What's the nutritional value of it? I mean, having worked at Soylent, you know, they, they made something reconstituted that was theoretically based on, you know, the ideal nutrition. Um, I think it's possible to make products that are, you know, have excellent nutrition by using a lot of different ingredients that can be processed. But I think probably there's a good majority of products out there that are processed that have very little nutrition. And that's, obviously something to worry about. And I guess there's there is some question about, you know, losing certain nutrients that you're not really putting back in certain types of processing, things that maybe we don't even know about in the case of plant-based ingredients. We all know about the vitamins and minerals that we need, but there's also kind of phytonutrients, so certain and things like certain enzymes and let's say you use a soy isolate protein then you're missing out on a lot of those other phytonutrients these these other kind of plant compounds that are too complex to even understand scientifically but could have a beneficial effect on health so
3: at one point we went to that algae biomass conference or something and they were discussing specifically algae for food and feed and at the time I was just like, well, what's the point of talking about it as feed if you're trying to replace it as a whole food ingredient? But now that I think of it, I I think that's fine. <laughs> because normally the the feed is soy or corn.
2: Yeah, I mean it's better it's better. The thing it's that's also
3: nutritionally better.
2: Yeah, the thing that's maybe leaves something to be desired is that it's yeah, you're taking like a half measure where I think we really need much more radical no, I complete know that. overhaul, but but yeah, I mean it's better to feed fish and other farmed uh, animals algae rather than other fish which, which is by the way now.
3: fish get their omega-3s from algae
2: right right algae algae is kind of at well it's obviously at the bottom of the food chain for pretty much the whole ocean and to some extent no, the i'm land. just saying that
3: because a lot yeah. of people take omega-3 supplements that are yeah. like fish oil but like it, it comes from algae right when they have farmed fish to give them omega-3s they give them tiny fish
2: Yeah, even smaller fish, like whatever fish it is, then they'll give it a small like like, ground up yeah, fish meal, they call it. And so, yeah, this this conference was looking at trying to get get algae to replace that. But actually, there's like an FDA. uh, I don't know if it's FDA or Department of Agriculture, probably Department of Agriculture or some U.S. Department that handles it that says that fish have to be fed fish like it's it's a part of the law. And (sighs) presumably, like from what we heard, it's like has to do with protecting the fishing industry.
0: I I just read something the other day about insect proteins being used as a potential fish feed because you can vertically farm insects. It's like super efficient form of protein. You can
4: already buy there's insect dog food in the market, even in like Rossman, right. they have it here. Oh, really? dogs don't like it as much. <laughs> they like barf. Yeah, they like barf much more than they like. <laughs> uh,
3: they
4: like non food. Yeah. yeah. Insects every do- is every dog every Okay. What the first I met one dog yesterday, we tried to give it some non food. It didn't like it. It was the first dog I uh, met who didn't like non food. It's like, yeah, a, I like I it. nine that out of ten.
3: more dogs like the original version. Ah uh,
2: yeah, that's true. Yeah. It. We made it a little bit more human centric in the in the yeah. recent version. <laughs> but
3: I was going <laughs> to say about the stuff that you're bringing up in terms of like what you liked about non-food, all of those things are actually things that have been a kind of a problem or have have been hard to defend. And in some ways we haven't we've tried not to be so aggressive in terms of saying if we're talking to people face to face, we will say why we use artificial flavors. I mean, we do have an FAQ that's coming out kind of explaining these things, but we just didn't want to um, come out being like everything you know is wrong, <laughs> like flavor, yeah. is everything.
2: One thing I wanted to point out about the natural versus artificial flavors. Well, first of all, we want to just kind of be honest, like any sort of product that you look at where it says natural flavors, it's essentially identical to artificial flavors. There's very little difference. In some cases, it's chemically identical. It's just that they got that particular flavor molecule or all the flavor molecules that are in it, they extract it from plants. Usually it's from plants versus the molecules that are in an artificial flavor formulation can come from other sources. And those sources might sound dystopian, like, you know, wood pulp or like actually petroleum or other things like that. But in the end, they're Processed through, you know, a series of chemical steps to get the finished molecule. And chemically, you know, a molecule is a molecule. That's the only important factor, you know, in terms of physics, is like what is the molecular shape. It doesn't really matter if it came from a vanilla bean or if it came from crude oil. It's it's the same molecule, and it has the exact same health effects. I think it can be very hard for people to to think about it in that way, but it's it's definitely the case. But one thing about artificial versus natural flavors is that not only are they identical. Chemically, and so for human health, they're the same. But from an ecological perspective, usually the natural flavor is much worse for the environment, and it's counterintuitive for a lot of people. But if you think about the production process of how they get the natural flavor extracted, usually it's from plants that have a very low yield of oils. So they have to take basically fields and fields of flowers, and usually the yield is something like 0.1%. So they're crushing up, let's say, like A hundred tons of these flowers, and then they're getting a tenth of a ton. And usually then it even gets processed further from that. So that 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 field of flowers could be used for, you know, a forest and it probably was a forest at some point before it was cut down to make room for flower harvesting. So it really has a big impact on the carbon footprint because we know that forests really hold on to carbon. They're a great buffer against carbon emissions. And also all the processing, you know, in terms of like the equipment that goes into like harvesting the field, you know, you know it, it all runs on petroleum, you know, so we have to kind of factor in a petroleum cost. Ironically, you know, the, the synthetic, version is probably made directly from petroleum so it's it's actually we took the petroleum out of the ground (laughs) and we just took the simplest route possible to then make the finished molecule just making some chemical changes purifying it that's obviously much more efficient than growing a whole field of flowers and using petroleum to power the tractors that then have to go and harvest the entire field. So, I mean, because we're so focused on ecological efficiency and you know really seeing non-food as a, having a real potential impact on CO2 emissions, because algae is obviously the most efficient food source in that regard, You know, we have to pair that with also using artificial flavors, even if it's extremely unpopular. And we get emails about it all the time.
3: As much as like some people, maybe some of our peers think that that's like cool. There's also even some of our peers and just like everybody else that we've met, the abstractions come with like the color, They're like, why is it black? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, basically it's black because it's very, very green. And then they're scared to try it. And then when they do try it, some of them, either they don't like the algae taste or it doesn't taste like algae. So then they're weirded out by that.
2: I would say probably... At no other point in human history has there been a larger percentage of, like, picky eaters on the face of the (laughs) earth. Yeah, no kidding. Um, And and I think it's actually a real problem in terms of addressing climate change because it's, like, if they're going to, like, hold on so fast to their food proclivities, then it's, like, how how are we supposed to change habits in a way that's, like, completely necessary? Or it's
3: just, like, what happened to trying things for fun yeah yeah
2: yeah i think it's like like, pop rock it's it is kind of an era of extreme conservatism in terms of food taste it probably a lot of it does come from a lot of this like fear marketing in terms of i think all natural the whole that whole movement is like a fear marketing thing the whole anti-gmo thing is obviously like completely fear-based so yeah it's like people have been conditioned to find danger around every step and if you have a feeling that something might be dangerous then you're going to be extremely attuned to the flavor and anything that's amiss you're gonna uh, you know kind of completely Reject.
3: Or some people think it as if the product is like some nuclear object. Right. Or like because it looks like a space ration or something that it's like really artificial. But then algae is like super, like it's been around forever. Yeah. I
2: remember seeing real fear in people's eyes looking at this small black <laughs> square. I mean, people are incredibly fearful. And I think it's a little bit worrying in terms of the future of the planet and the food system. I mean, the food system is probably second to transportation. Some estimates would say that it's above transportation in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions that it produces. And then it's number one for water use and, of course, number one for land use. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a major thing.
4: The real problem, it seems like okay, people are like, for good reason, you know, concerned, in theory if gmos are at least concerned with what they're eating or interested in it but like that the same fear for the climate is it's combined into one thing and that's obviously counter counterproductive generally so i don't know there's a there'd be a great way to decouple those things because they're both valid concerns but
1: like you imagine people they see the environment around them changing very rapidly the first thing they think is I'm going to try to control the food I eat and that I give my family. Mm-hmm. At least I can be Pref- like, preserve
4: the nature, right. push out the artificial. Right. In, in that, like, that And sense. It's, it's
1: like a very simple one-to-one, like it comes from a good place. It comes from a place of wanting to have like a truer relationship to their environment, to be responsible. People like to be, and especially under a new liberal regime where you're told that you're responsible for your own success. You're also responsible for your own demise. It's a very natural thing. Huh? that people would think that they need to have food that they know where it comes from. And then they're being good parents by feeding that to their children. But it sounds like a massive marketing problem that, yeah, there's this like false positive that we have.
0: People will get very alkaline water from 3000 miles away. Water.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah from, true. like
0: To think because they think it's Healthier and the most natural healthiest water. And it's been like flown halfway around the world.
1: I mean, there are a lot of sociological vectors as to what healthy and what natural means. But I wonder, and interesting when you say when people look at this dark green bar, they think of something that's like, you know, has this like radioactive. I wonder, do you guys have a sense sociologically? And I guess you're speaking mostly about the American market. You're not speaking about the Asian market or Japanese market or right. Do you have a, a sense? Can you place when the fear set in for the American market when we went from yay blue raspberry pop rocks jello Wonder Bread, yeah. right. I mean, like when I was a kid, I definitely was fed tons of microwavable stuff. Like, yes. and my mom is like a good, you know, she cared, she made dinners too, but like no qualms about like any of this. So, when when do you think the tide turned?
3: Well, I think. It coincides with the can't believe it's not butter, like margarine.
4: But that's also like the low fat moment, right? Snackwell's
1: moment. Early 90s. Olestra.
4: Olestra.
3: Olestra. Olestra.
2: Oh, God.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <That> sounds
2: really <laughs> cool. so yeah, yeah, everybody the, has that reaction. Yeah, I think
3: also just in terms of my own personal memory, basically, before people were concerned with diet, then the language around that became healthy, then it was natural. And then now it's functional.
2: Like there's probably just moments of it throughout history. Like, for example, in this talk that we saw from Nadia Berenstein, like there was... Already, I believe this was like the oh, yeah. turn of the 1900s. Oh, where I want to describe
3: this. It was like anti-margarine. And it was like this really old ad that was in a newspaper. And then it showed like a demon mixing this thing that said oleic butter, which was margarine. And then it was like putting trash in this barrel and like, <laughs>
2: yeah, it was like a cartoon yeah, cartoon version of like, here's what they put in yeah, margarine. Like a trash no one knows demon. what's in it. It's reconstituted. Essentially it was like, oh, this is a reconstituted unnatural product. Unlike, you know, butter, which, you know, comes from milk and we all understand that. And this was like around, I want to say it's like the 1910s or something like that. You know, so this was a long time ago. And then later the FDA made a rule probably uh, because of the dairy lobby that a margarine can't use added color. And they used to mix beta carotene. In with margarine to make it this kind of yellowish color, which is similar to what you know butter can have at certain times, and the butter gets that yellow color from beta carotene that the cows um, ingest. But um, but the FDA made a rule that you can't add that to margarine, so it made margarine look even you know even less natural at the at the behest of the dairy lobby. They found this kind of loophole, which was kind of funny, where they would actually give you a in, in some of the products, they would give you a little packet of beta carotene that you could add to the margarine um, and mix <laughs> it in. But, um, wow. but but yeah, so that's like an early example, I guess, of some of this fear based marketing. But I, yeah, I think probably there was a bigger turn around the I want to say the 90s when maybe organic and and certainly the non GMO movement became more mainstream or pronounced, you know, and of course, those both of those things come from good intentions. It's just that scientifically, when you start to think in terms of carbon emissions and land use, and the idea that, you know, a forest really captures carbon, and it's like, maybe the best thing to have, uh, versus agricultural land, which emits carbon, because when you're tilling the soil, like the long buried carbon is, is actually emitted into the atmosphere. And you think about it in terms of land use, well, since organic has a lower yield, then, you know, conventional food crops, you have to use about 1.5 times as much land based on this, uh, based on a study I've seen from Sweden. If you grow the conventional crop, you could have, you know, like one acre and you get your product, and then you have a half acre of forest to the side, you know, and that's a great carbon sink. But if you're growing organic, then it's all agricultural land. So it's actually, yeah, pretty bad in terms of carbon emissions. So, but then you do have to look at, to some extent pesticides, certain types of pesticides, I would say, because organic can also use pesticides. It's just that they use like broad spectrum things like copper sulfate versus like the really highly specialized ones that probably are more likely to affect things like bees on the ground, like in an actual farm, it's like a pretty muddy distinction. And then of course there's huge difference between like organic farm A and organic farm B, conventional farm A, conventional farm B. So it's like really hard to make generalizations,
3: I do remember that um, Briar's ice cream commercial where the little kid is like, he or she is like reading the label and they're like, Dextro something, something. And then they can't pronounce a lot of the ingredients, but they're actually just like, the proper name for a lot of i remember there's oh, yeah. <laughs> always ingredients
4: like, right. you can pronounce but it's just as right. like they don't yeah. use the latin words right. <laughs> it's just like why don't you teach you yeah. it? latin and then we
3: wanted to do a non food advertisement where there was a little kid pronouncing all the things correctly <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, you, so you really should do that yeah, yeah. The New Models podcast is part of a larger project to carve out a piece of media space for a different kind of conversation. For further context, check out our aggregator page at https://newmodels.io, where we aggregate media that is particularly relevant to our community. If you want to be a part of our community, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com/newmodels. As a member, you get access to the New Models Discord and our private topsoil bantercasts. I heard that in the in the Bible that, I don't know, there was some people that were going somewhere in the desert and they had some machine that made some food called manna or something. And the theory is that it was actually algae and they had... It was spirulina. Right, they had something that was making spirulina and that's what they
4: ate, bricks of the food to survive. Have you all heard this? I, I think but, I vaguely know what you're talking about. And yeah, I think I remember, yeah, manna is just is right, algae. Right, it was, it was yeah.
0: algae. And I know that there's some... Uh, Right. Wasn't there people in uh, indigenous people in Mexico who would eat algae as well? What is the pro? What is it? What's the amino acid profile of the protein in in algae? Mm.
2: Yeah. So it's pretty close to animal protein. You know, it's not 100 percent digestible in the way that animal protein is, but it's not far off. I don't have an exact number off the top of my head. Depends on the strain of algae, but it's better than most plant-based sources. Mm. Um, So like soy is pretty good, but it tends to be better than soy. Algae tends to be better than soy. Things like wheat are pretty low, like uh, maybe like 60% digestible. So it's much better than a lot of those other. But
3: then also in terms of iron, it's more bioavailable than a Mm. lot of other um, plants.
0: Are there vegan bodybuilders supplementing with algae protein already? Already. Well,
2: people Let's use spirulina. Like they'll put a, like a little bit of a spirulina right. in a smoothie. So that's definitely like a thing that's been going on probably since the 70s in the US, and certainly like much earlier in places like Mexico. And yeah, that
3: it's quite expensive for someone to supplement themselves uh, like <laughs> with okay. that yeah. much. I think, I think that's the difference. Yeah, body body I mean that's body what
2: in in a nutshell. That's kind of, of like of what we were trying to do with algae. Is like we see it as existing in this kind of supplement space almost sometimes like a homeopathic kind of idea of like algae giving you good vibes or something like that. Like, I mean, I do think that Moon Juice has, they have some algae ingredients in some of their stuff, but if you look at it, it's probably like less than 1% of the overall product. And and we've seen that with other companies as well, where they're, they'll have algae be like the main selling point, but then you look at the ingredients and it's like probably like 1% to 2%, like you can kind of tell. Yeah, they have Um, like
3: an Aztec label. Yeah. Yeah.
0: As of now you say it's like people aren't supplement Algae protein for bodybuilding And and you say it's a cost issue I mean, but do you think algae Really is scalable in terms of Cost to become a global Protein source for a a population That doubles, say, in the next uh, Whatever, 20 years?
1: I mean, its efficiency also is super high Right? But But of course
0: the market It's it's like, uh, cost is what matters To the market. Algae can use
1: one one hundredth Of the energy resources required That plant life would require And one one thousandth of the energy required by animal protein is that mm-hmm. it's,
0: yeah, basically it's so like yeah. solar power you right know? so what is the yeah. co- why is the cost so high then right now is
2: it surely yeah. so a matter of scale that's a really good question so yeah it can be scaled but it's it's not there yet and uh, a lot of the companies that are making algae now you know they're they're not super huge like they're you know they they have their operation but they're not like a huge company and a lot of them started as trying to make biofuel before they pivoted to food. So it's like, rel- it's like a pretty new category of the food industry, but th- there's a other complicating factor, uh, especially in the US where a lot of sources of protein, like uh, for example, whey protein, you know, they're they're a kind of a byproduct of the dairy industry and there's artificial subsidies that keep those prices in, in just in terms of like what the market price would be based on the resources that go into it, uh, it keeps them artificially low. And that's the case with a lot of food that's grown in the US. So, Algae doesn't have any sort of like subsidies coming from the federal government. So it's not it's not competing on those terms. And so it has to kind of like make its own industry from scratch, essentially.
4: Actually, I wonder if that's stipulated in the Green New Deal, if there's any subsidies for the (laughs) algae. algae. There should
2: be. There should be. We are
3: proponents of growing your own.
2: Yeah, yeah. We're doing that. You know, we're just we're growing algae upstairs. That's like maybe the real promise of of algae is that beyond this kind of ecological efficiency, it's like this kind of food stability and this possibility of producing your own food, or at least in a small scale, maybe community based setting, like producing enough for a localized community and making a more distributed food system. I think that that's something that would be like a, an ideal outcome of people adopting algae on a larger scale.
3: Yeah, like aesthetically, I used to really not like the farmer's market kind of thing or like the the overload of people saying buy local. But actually, Mm. it is the community centered kind of approach and producing your own food and doing things locally is better.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's great if you can do it. I think the the main problem with completely locally grown in urban areas is that, well, you can't really locally grow. You have to grow it kind of either on a rooftop garden, which. It's not going to produce that much food or in New Jersey or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's at least pretty close proximity. But the main problem with locally grown is that can you produce enough nutrition to feed the actual people that are in that location? And only certain crops produce protein in a large amount. Soy is actually one of them, but algae is, is another one which produces much more protein than soy. I've seen a lot of stuff with vertical farming. And I think that that's like a great solution with the exception that a lot of it's indoors. So it's it's actually using uh, electricity. I don't know that it can easily scale to produce the nutrition that people need, because most of those things that are grown in a vertical farm don't give you much protein. And that's protein is kind of the limiting factor in terms of like human, (laughs) humans, basically, like, you know, we get plenty of carbs from plants and we get we, we can get fats from them, but we can't really easily find protein.
1: Right. Where we live in Berlin, we live right on a canal. I think there's an excess of nitrogen in from the water. The,
2: from the agricultural
1: runoffs,
4: from, yeah. I guess, up, yeah. Up,
1: upstream in Brandenburg, which means that there's a lot of algae in the canals. In fact, they have a boat that they take up and down the canals at night, oxygenating the water. Is, I, I know this is a problem throughout Berlin. I assume that the algaeification of different waterways is also a problem in the U.S. Is it possible to farm that algae in these public waterways for some kind of use? Maybe not for human ingestion, but is there some mm-hmm. way will, of... Yeah. For fuel or is there or are there any programs that are trying to take this problem and turn it into an available resource? I mean, it seems like it could be green gold if it were fit into the system in the right way. But I don't know anything yep. about this. So I mean
2: that's that's also like the flip side of because algae is so it grows so efficiently, so it uses very little resources. So then if even a little bit of extra nitrogen gets into the water, then it just it blooms, you know, because it's just so good at growing. It's been doing that since you know, for billions of years, because it's uh, very well adapted to to growing quickly. But yeah, in terms of finding uses for that, I've definitely heard of a lot of, or like a fair number of companies that have proposed that and say that they're working towards it. I know of one company that's already started making a kind of like a rubber. I believe they had a partnership with Nike to make like the soles of certain Nike shoes. Actually, always oh, tennis oh, shoes. Always.
1: <laughs> tennis shoes are always like solving like seaweed, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like right. ocean trash. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, they may have a lot of other problems, but they, they're at least solving that problem. Yeah. So, and then um, it's
3: like dual branded with like Future or something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Future yeah. Spirit. Um, I've, I've heard of, I don't know if any are doing it, but I've heard of companies proposing using it for fuel or like working towards that. Definitely yeah. it can't be used for food because it's just unknown varieties of algae. There's only about, I believe there's five algae varieties that are approved for use uh, for food in, in the U.S. Most likely those algae aren't present and if they are then it's nearly impossible to extract them separately. So can't use them for human food. I wonder about animal food. The only problem is that some of the algae can produce toxins, including neurotoxins. So probably not, I guess. It's really pretty much fuel and and plastics manufacturing. That
4: sort of, I guess, leads to the question, like, of course, it's going to take up way less space, but algae farming, by definition, it has to be a monoculture because it can't be contaminated. Mm-hmm. So, is that a problem in and of itself, or is it just because it's so much more efficient? You can offset it with forest around it, or, or what's the deal?
2: Yeah, well, so I think that the the main problem with monocultures is that they're they're like out there in the world; they're out there in the environment. You know, when you have like pretty much a whole state that's taken over by like corn farms, then it it produces like a completely different ecology than what was there before. It, produces a really strange ecology. Yeah, it becomes vulnerable to certain pests and diseases and things like that. In the case of algae, it's it's kind of separated from the environment because algae is grown, it's grown on land, or at least most algae uh, and the algae that we use, it's grown on land, but it's grown in these either artificial tanks or kind of artificial ponds. And those are, you know, kept separate from the environment at large. So they don't really have an impact on, you know, the surrounding environment. They just, they take up a, very small amount of space compared to other farms, you know, they're not really integrated with the environment in 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 a negative way. Yeah. But then theoretically, like from a nutrition perspective, you don't want to eat just the same thing over and over again. You know, even with those five varieties of algae, like there's a lot of variation that you can get. One thing that I've heard of recently from a a kind of algae researcher in at uh, Arizona State University is that and this might be more for fuel that they use it this way, but some companies are starting to use like co-cultures. So they'll grow two different varieties of algae together and they're trying to find ones that kind of work well together, essentially. They, they're kind of like beneficial to each other. And so maybe one algae produces a lot of sugar and the other produces a lot of protein and nitrogen. And then they kind of work together and kind of share, which, which happens sometimes <laughs> with, with symbiotic uh, colonies. And so, so then it's not really monocultures anymore. If it, if it moves into that direction, I guess it's co-cultures at that point. And then eventually it could be something where it's like, you know, many varieties of algae that are all approved for food use. If, if we're talking about food, that then go into a finished product, you know, which I think could be kind of interesting.
1: Algae um, world building, yeah. I like that. Um, algae in <laughs> space, is it possible?
2: Yeah, it, it has been done. It was tested early on by the Soviet Space Agency. They brought up some algae mainly to produce oxygen during the flight, but also to theoretically eat. And I think that it didn't go too well. Like, I think people, was it in stick people didn't form? like it. I don't think it was in stick form. I don't, I don't. know what so form it was actually.
1: Right, but algae um, actually hap- helps with with carbon capture.
4: That's what it which does. is like
1: yeah, which yeah, is yeah. Like- <laughs>
4: It's basically, it basically like a, a really oxygen on
2: earth
1: because right. of, Cause of di- yeah. diatoms. right 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 yeah. of course
2: yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah it's really you know it's made of carbon mostly and takes it out of the air gives us back oxygen so it's it's an excellent thing for rebalancing you know gases in the atmosphere they're still looking at algae in space but I haven't heard of anything recently but it seems pretty much like it would happen like I you know, I don't see what other kinds of food you're going to be trying to grow up there, honestly, that would actually like work on such a small scale. I think you, maybe you would like have algae as the main staple and then you just grow a few like tomatoes and stuff for like just nostalgic reasons or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: what other kind of cellular agriculture projects do you think are interesting besides algae?
3: Micro- yeah. protein.
2: Yeah, mycoprotein, and that's been around for a little while. Like yeah. with corn, with that company, corn. Hmm. Um,
3: corn just recently got like a big round of funding. So, yeah, Q-u- uh, uh, I think it's a British company. Yeah. So it's like kind of like a mushroom, but more like a fungus culture.
2: Yeah, I, I, it's somewhere. It's it's a fungus, but it's kind of almost like a bacteria too. Yeah. I'm a little but macular, anyway, actually.
3: they've been around forever, and uh, like at. Major grocery stores, and then I think at some point um, when people realized that they don't know what it is, they got scared, and then it kind of like lost its popularity.
2: Yeah, I had one of these fear moments actually. Uh, There was like yeah.
3: It actually wasn't vegan; it was vegetarian. And then recently, they got a big round of funding, and they're making a vegan version.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of other like cellular agriculture is becoming a real interesting space so for example they're taking you know muscle cells or or maybe some sort of stem cell from a cow and then turning it into a muscle cell that grows on a kind of scaffold to produce something like a a along the lines of a hamburger because Um, like well texture
3: is like one of the biggest things
2: yeah so they're growing the cow without the cow but yeah at the moment the hardest thing is to get that muscle texture like what you would find in a steak so they're starting out with things like hamburgers that are more amorphous but none of this is on the market yet
3: yeah, um, everybody, I think all of those companies say they're three years out.
2: Yeah, and then every time we ask them, they say that they're three years away from, from it. It's, <laughs> been, it's been like five years since we've
3: They're been, nice people. They're great people.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it's a cool idea. I mean, okay, from an environmental standpoint, it saves some land, but not not necessarily if you count the growth medium that they're using to grow the cells, and we, we don't know exactly what that is, and at the moment, a lot of it is dependent on fe- fetal bovine serum, which does come from cows to, to get the cells started, you know, so it's not entirely... You know, out, out, <laughs> yeah, it's not outside of the animal agriculture industry. Speaking of corporate consolidation, a lot of the more established companies that are growing, like, lab-grown meat are... Tyson have majority stakes by like uh, some of the large meat companies. So Tyson, although I think Tyson sold off some of their, Yeah. yeah. But, you know, that's basically seems to be the way that that newer industry is going is like it might just eventually be acquired by like previous meat producers and then just kind of continue alongside it. We don't know. I mean, there might be some that remain independent. But
3: there are ones that are a little bit further along with seafood kind of replacements. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, yeah. But oh, I have to say my f- absolute favorite lab grown meat project or, or like oh, cultured yeah. meat project is Shojin meat, which is also connected to IntegraCulture. They're a Japanese company. IntegraCulture is a Japanese company. And uh, Shojin meat is kind of a community
3: citizen science collective.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Yuki Hanyu, he's... Uh,
3: so when he did a presentation at New Harvest, he showed this photo of the kind of area that they work in. And there was like a picture of like a eight-year-old child doing stuff.
2: Yeah, they have kids as young as like eight but years old. But then they also have like also... manga
3: artists and stuff like that. And they all kind of are inspired by <laughs> cellular agriculture. Yeah. Um, and then I guess their actual company is doing... Pate.
2: Yeah, he talked about this uh, kind of foie gras, I guess, you know, because of that form issue, like the texture issue, you can't do something like steak, but you can do something that's more amorphous. Also, it's a high value thing. So it's like, you know, it's an expensive product per, per ounce or whatever, because it's still expensive, cellular agriculture. That's the thing they're trying to get costs down before they can scale it up.
1: I have one more question regarding class and uh, scaling. Before this podcast, I was listening to a bunch of podcasts of people like farmers in America who are really sus of the Green New Deal and are really sus of coastal elites telling them how to farm. But at the same time, what was really interesting is that a lot of these farmers are like in completely handy when it comes to futuristic technology on their farms. You know, if you talk to them, they say that, yeah, well, my grandparents survived the Great Depression or the Dust Bowl, but now thanks to geo tracking, we can actually defend against that to some extent. And we're really open to new technology. So I wonder if from your industry perspective, there's an inroad there on trying to work with farmers who actually are open to tech to get them to knowledge share really about farming practices and new agriculture. Have you had any experience with that yet?
2: So at the moment we get our algae from a few different suppliers, but I wouldn't really call any of them farmers. They're more like these companies that grow it on a kind of industrial scale in like a facility. So yeah, depending on the setup, it's kind of like a system of bioreactors or it's these artificial ponds, but they are kind of agricultural in a way. But in terms of uh, more traditional farmers, I think that that is a, a real possibility. I think you're right. I mean, farmers are nothing if not like extremely practical. And so if something is going to work then they'll use it you know and yeah that's part of why they don't want to yeah like as you say they don't want to be told how to do something because they know that you know someone uh somewhere might have an idea of how they should farm and then they know that that just doesn't work like on the ground for algae i think maybe that's something where if someone you know figures out the exact right growing conditions for algae in a way to make it inexpensive to scale then you know the farmers have land and so you know we could say something like oh you have these these like 100 acres, why don't you put aside this one acre and just grow algae and then we'll buy it. And then that one acre might actually produce as much food as the other 99 acres. And, you know, if it works, then they'll maybe start doing it and maybe because that would grow. you can do in a,
1: in a closed... Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you think like if there's going to be a no plant 2020, then you're like, <laughs> well, you you know, your corn failed, but your algae right. like doesn't care if it rains. Right. Because it's just it's a, right. a different environment. Interesting. Yeah. That's actually one of
2: the I guess, aside from the yeah the ecological aspects, like one of the good things is that it's OK. Yeah. It's a great way to kind of diminish climate change, but also it's a pretty good food product if climate change has the worst case scenario as well. Right. Um, it likes, you know, it's, it, it it's, likes carbon dioxide. Yeah.
1: You could see instead yeah. your algae too, literally. Yeah, Definitely. you can kind of hedge
2: your bets. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. On land and in space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in space well. yeah. So one of uh, one person in our Discord is asking, what are the most urgent things to fight for in terms of what we should be pushing our local and national reps to address when it comes to sustainability or good agricultural practice going forward?
2: I, I mean, a lot of people are focused on this, and I think it's a, a very for a very good reason. But yeah, reducing animal agriculture—that's you know a huge kind of no-brainer. Of course, we're biased, but we would also say, yes, maybe some research funding in terms of algae development. I mean, the one thing that would change maybe on a larger perspective than just the agricultural field, but yeah, if there was some sort of taxation on carbon, but of course that has to be done carefully because it shouldn't fall only on like the poor and middle class. Like it should mainly be a tax on corporations. The honest answer is to like completely restructure the entire (laughs) (laughs) economic system and
1: <laughs> right. you know,
2: um, yeah. I guess if you could ask your representative to dismantle capitalism, that would be <laughs> a start.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like that meme: like all you have to do is recycle, all you have to do is ride a bike, all yeah. you have to do is completely restructure capitalism. Mm-hmm. There was a second question, also, which said: cultural versus legislative change. What comes first? What's the priority? And doesn't matter. It's hard to
2: say, but I think uh, you know, it's it's unlikely that something's going to get legislated unless there's like a cultural. Base in favor of it, or a lot of money in favor of it. So, uh, I L-G guess lobby. cultural change happens first. Yeah, um, but but I mean, I just
3: feel like, oh, yeah, like well, in terms of food, the consumer has been like shaped so specifically that the cultural adoption. Is a really big part, like how consumers process different signals. Like one thing I noticed about Impossible and Beyond Burger is that specifically when they came out that they didn't come out saying, oh, this is a product for vegans. Like they came out saying that this is our thing. And they came out in restaurants first before you had a supermarket product because they Kind of wanted to create like a context for how you're experiencing their product. And also that probably coincides with uh, controlling how it's cooked, actually, because it's a little bit harder when you have it at home. And also how like uh, the Moon Juice stuff, it's like kind of remarkable how powerful Chantal Bacon is, even though she's like made fun of so much. It's just like her influence to influence people to be so enthusiastic about certain ingredients or things like I just wonder what would happen if it was towards something actually good (laughs) that's
4: that's that's a good point well actually
2: (laughs) and that that gives me or that reminds me of an answer maybe to the other question about what would be a good thing to ask a legislator for example and I think
3: Chantal Bacon (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I think one, I think maybe a good first step would actually be like a systematic, uh, heavily researched, neutral, trusted way of tracking the resource footprint of all industries and products. Um, even you know, like so a label, right? You, you have right? to know. <laughs> yeah. What's that? Like a la- even a labeling label. it. Yeah, a like carbon yeah. label or something. Yeah. If there was a way, almost like you have the, and I think actually Holland did something a little bit like this where they have the nutrition, but then they also have like some information about the environmental footprint. I've seen that somewhere. I, got that in my um, car I don't control. know how in depth it is, but what's that?
4: I got that on my, I, I rented a car and it had the price, and oh, right. had the CO2 yeah. price. And I, yeah. But the problem with so that think, is it's so abstract, and what does it well, mean? I in, in, in Germany,
0: yeah. with meat now, they have a one to four scale of how humane it is, with one what? being like battery cages, four being oh. bo- uh, organic, and three being like three being like yeah free range ish
2: or something, carrion meat. But yeah, I think that would be a good first step. And you know, the real problem is to make it neutral and trustable because obviously there's so many different different entities that would want to try to sway how those numbers are uh, decided. And of course, it's a really complicated thing because, for example, weighing the, the cost of CO2 emissions or the impact of CO2 emissions versus the production of plastics, like those are kind of two different things because plastics don't necessarily produce very much CO2 compared to yeah, other things. Yeah,
3: there's carbon or water. Yeah,
2: but, but then they're persistent, so they have other problems. So oh, it would have to down, be like defense. across across a range of different, like, factors. and But at the same time, being able to synthesize that into information that would be readable and meaningful to a consumer. And, and I'm not saying that, like, it, ha- it should be on the consumers to, like, change their habits and solve global warming. Like, I'm a- absolutely not. But at least, like, it should be known information. But I would also say like-
3: that that process of... Carbon counting for uh, your product is very cost prohibitive. Yeah. And like there's only like the biggest companies can actually do it. So like, yeah, it would be great if we had that for the bar, Mm. but it's expensive. (laughs) And also we would have to do it every time the bar Mm -hmm. changed the people that care about that kind of stuff are usually not the same people who want to try the bar Mm. there are some people who are really interested in one aspect but they don't actually want to eat it
2: Mm. i think yeah that's almost like i would say a problem that we've experienced in general is that like there is a contingent of people to which non-food and the non-bar is like a very nice a very good interesting idea but to whom like it's not a actual f- source of food for them personally you know and i think that that's like there's a real gap there i'm guessing like some of them are concerned about you know the ecological footprint of food but probably not all of them but there's a there can be a kind of bifurcation there where there's a lot of interest on an intellectual level and that's really not what we're trying to do but I maybe guess. labels
3: <laughs> would make people concerned because people like, like yeah people
2: it. love reading labels well so. people
3: like reading labels but they yeah. also like price comparison yeah so yeah. maybe there's like they can do like carbon mm-hmm. <laughs> carbon comparison or something I just think that, yeah. that
4: like that whole comp- like what we're hoping for from that or like it's not just for labeling it's like we want a general artificial intelligence that can manage yeah. our economy. Huh. Like that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Deciding whether or not carbon or plastic or which of these things are worth. And right. All of these different factors, social factors. Yeah. Env- I mean, it's a great it's application
1: impossible. in AI, actually. Well, that's mean, AI that actually that's what AI will like, do. It, yeah.
4: it's what it will do, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: I think that that's actually, yeah, I thought that as well, that that's probably a likely application because actually counting carbon is so extremely, like, Hard and there's so many variables and maybe this is a, the best promotional concept for non-food is that the idea of the carbon basilisk, which is that you know if there is a ROCO's basilisk, it'll probably start out as being like a carbon counting basilisk. Well, maybe I you know don't want to talk too much about it, but you know it, it basically want to want to start counting your carbon is what I'm saying. You know, um, right? Because we doing exist it now because car- someone someone's watching. You know, or this someone makes will sense. be. This makes like I said, green green new
0: deal don't don't sign up for frequent flyer programs
1: <laughs> because they're
0: going to they're going to see who flew the most and then they'll send you to Gitmo if you, if you fly too much. Same with carbon.
1: <laughs>
0: the bat, carbon basil is going to put you in Gitmo. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: my god.
3: Oh, the downfall of carbon counting or accounting of carbon is I don't know if it really addresses the fact that like really big structural changes would have to happen.
2: Yeah, the idea of doing this whole System of like figuring out the entire environmental impact in a systematic way. Like the end goal of that should not be to like nudge consumers towards. You know, getting the slightly better carbon product because I think that that's not going to solve global warming. It does need to be like a much larger structural change.
1: I mean, I guess it's also up to stores. Stores should stock things that are like more mm-hmm. like carbon neutral. So you know, bio stores will not just store stock sustainable meat or sustainable products, but will nudge towards things that are yeah, companies that are I don't know.
4: I don't know. I just feel like okay, but the bio store is the perfect example. So the produce that they're selling that has a much higher carbon footprint than the non bio exactly. store. Exactly. But so they you won't have put to, it in right, plastic. Right, 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 But the plastic mm-hmm. actually has less carbon footprint than the yeah, paper exactly. basket. Yeah, exactly. It, it feels yeah. like it's really, it's not only that it's carbon accounting, it's like you have to try to quantify values and like right. yeah. uh, in really a very intrinsic way. Should, yeah. And that's we why, we need general intelligence yeah. to do something like that. Yeah. And it's yeah. not to make packages, it's to manage yeah. our economy. Yeah. And then and make...
1: market it to us the right way. Exactly. So that we're that's, willing to take that's it.
4: That's a Roco's marketing basilisk If we just end with a bit of hyperspace dish in
0: here. What, what do you imagine just if you sketch out almost like science fiction, a sustainable food future would look like? What are we eating? What's farmed? How does
2: it work? Yeah, I think that this idea of like a localized, basically algae bioreactor would be key. Uh, it could be either something that people have individually in each of their homes, or it could be something that is kind of more like centered by block, you know, like every block in an urban area would have a kind of bio bioreactor that grows enough algae for the people of that block, let's say. So then you would have this kind of like distributed, resilient food system where, you know, if, if one block's bioreactor is down, then they can probably borrow some <laughs> algae from the other block, you know. <laughs> um, you know, and then probably there would st- there can still be like, you know, community gardens. But it's like I would imagine that those kind of foods grown there, let's say tomatoes, lettuce, herbs. They're grown more for like flavor and additional texture and, and just for enjoyment, whereas probably the algae is providing most of the nutrition. That's something I see as like a very positive and, and very sustainable food future. And and by bioreactor, I really just mean like a system yeah. of tanks, you know, that keeps the algae alive and it could regulate the temperature um, if it's like a, inside of a greenhouse, which is what we're building for the for this L.A. project, you know, with maybe an extractor fan and some other things to regulate temperature, make sure it doesn't get too hot, but also not too cold. It's, it can be a kind of a simple setup. It doesn't necessarily require a huge amount of expertise. Yeah, I think that that's something that would
1: Really Job creation, really make a lot of sense the job actually. managing be like the, your, algae,
2: the algae man.
1: Yeah, the algae man. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> It'll be like the the algae. building superintendent, bio or like director. the the block leader, or something. You'd you know, <laughs> um, yeah. You'd have your like the block algae person, and maybe that would be like a uh, either they're just interested in it, or it's their employment, or
4: the algae man is the highest ranking member of society, and they have twenty wives, and yeah, gifts bestowed upon them,
1: <laughs> on every harvest. Yeah.
4: They answered directly to the, the central uh, algae. some, some real hyperstition there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> algae domination, 2039.
1: Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast. <laughs> algae, algae first. <laughs> algae first. <laughs> make, <laughs> make algae great
2: again. Uh, blah, blah,
4: blah.
1: <laughs> okay, so where can we find uh, non-food?
2: Oh, so yeah, you can go to our website. Really, right now we sell it pretty much entirely online. The website is eatnonfood.com or you can probably Google non-food and it's it's pretty much will show up.
3: And if you work for a big startup, or any size startup. Yeah,
2: if you, you work for a, we do a startup cafeteria. discount. Yeah, we do startup discounts, a few other industry discounts and things like that. Just yeah. the
1: U.S. or North America or right. do you also distribute? Yeah, right
2: America? now we, we only officially ship to the U.S. You can try at your own risk and if it goes through customs, then or you can email us and just kind of, ask about it uh, in terms of international shipping and we can see if there's a way to do it
1: we can be your mule so dm us (laughs) cool okay thank thank you you so much thanks bye thank (laughs) you
0: okay time for shout outs first a huge thank you to jean-luc villa who helped with the editing on this podcast also thank you to jeff mack and to sky mj carranza who have been working with us on new models editorial and production also, shout-outs to everyone who has plied us with tips and links. Masha Chan, Taylor Wagstaff, Jack Tarpy, Stephen Warwick, Matt Dryhurst, Alex Scrimger, Joshua Citarella, Jan Vorsek, Daniel Beattie, at F12, Kia Kreutler, John Kelsey, Anka Adam Peace, Kate Brown, Sybil Prentice, Ivan, Paul Iphone, David Turner, Riley Gold, and Alex Iadarola. And from our Patreon community, Shipco, Agonism, Bucky Poppy, J S Aurelius, Freudenheim, Firefly, Vindaloo, Tranquility 2099, Hollywood Yang Gang, Terence, Lawrence 4000, Spring Break 1944, Jack T, Arb, David Y, Exhumed, Cody B, Chan, T R L N T R N R. That's a new one. Welcome to the Discord. B N Z, Local Man, B W, Golem Mechanics, Agonism. MDMA dealer, Matter Fiction, Pink Cadillac, SWR, Speculative Name, and Bradley. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.